This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. A disciple of the noble ones, devoid of covetousness, devoid of ill will, unbewildered, alert, mindful, keeps pervading the first direction with an awareness imbued with equanimity, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. Thus above, below, and all around, everywhere in its entirety, she keeps pervading the all-encompassing cosmos with an awareness imbued with equanimity. Abundant, expansive, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. She discerns before this mind of mine was limited and undeveloped, but now this mind of mine is immeasurable and well-developed, and whatever action that was done in a measurable way does not remain there, does not linger there. Equanimity is the tenth of the paramitas, paramis or paramitas, the virtues of an enlightened being. And it is also the the fourth of the Brahma Viharas, the four immeasurables. May you be filled with happiness and the root of happiness. May you be free of suffering and the root of suffering. May you never be separated from boundless joy, which is free of suffering. And may you remain in perfect equanimity that knows no desire or aversion. And so in one way you could say equanimity is the the pinnacle of these two practices, the perfection of perfection, if you will, according to the Pali Canon. But in in the Mahayana school, you know, there's only the six paramitas in wisdom. Wisdom is the last one. And, and it is really seen as the, the anchor for all the other paramitas. So without wisdom, they are not, in fact, a perfection. And I was wondering if this was uh, intentionally changed, because the wisdom also appears in the, the list of the ten paramitas, but not at the end. And I, I, just, I was wondering whether this was changed when Buddhism uh, went to China and the, the Mahayana school was developed, maybe because equanimity can seem, um, it can be misinterpreted as being cold or distant or uh, detached, uncaring. And I, I too have been kind of tiptoeing gingerly around it. I kept, you know, I knew that it was coming and I kept... Um, thinking, you know, how am I going to talk about it so that it doesn't seem clinical and cold, removed, you know, like a, like a samurai uh, killing someone with perfect equipoise. And so I was thinking about writing this talk, uh, an image came to my mind. It, it must have been maybe... Three summers ago, I was in, in New York City. I was in Brooklyn, and I was going to the temple, and I was riding the subway, and the, so it was pretty empty. 
the, the car, and so it was me and probably a couple of other people. And almost directly in front of me was a young man, probably in his early 20s. And he looked, you know, perfectly ordinary. He looked kind of like an all-American, uh, an athlete probably. And, you know, he was wearing these ragged jeans and there was a backpack at his feet and he was reading a book that he was holding on his lap. And at first, you know, I just noticed him and then I did whatever I was doing. But then something, something kind of pulled my attention again and so I turned to look at him again. And the feeling is hard to describe, but it was... um, I felt as if the entire car and all the people in it, and the track that we were on, and all the buildings that we were passing um, over, because it was one of the the, um, overhead lines, and with all its jumble of people and cars, that everything was being pulled into his being. And it hit me at that moment, I had never seen anyone be so still, outside of the Zendo. And even then, rarely, very rarely, I had never seen anyone be so still. And so I, I kept, you know, I was pretending not to stare, but I was. <laughs> and uh, and he, he, he was reading, I think, but he was a very slow reader because it was a while before he would change the, he would turn the page. And even then when he did, he would just, you know, take just his fingertips and just take the corner of the page and move it over and then return, you know, his hands were holding the book on his lap, and it was like he had never moved. And I was so, I was mesmerized, in fact. I I felt so um, drawn to him. And I I had this very strong feeling that his movement then would be very graceful, that there would be something so beautiful and centered about him. And so I wanted to wait until he got up and got off the subway so I could just watch him walk away. And uh, my stop arrives, and I think, well, I can just go one more stop. And so I do. He's still not moving. I go another stop, and I think, you know, I'm going to be late for the temple. And what am I going to tell Shugen? Oh, sorry, I was late. I was following a young man around. (laughs) So I couldn't. You know, I I had to leave, and I had to turn around. And as the, the train is leaving, I'm still, you know, watching him through the window, just waiting to see if I can see him move. Um, and and actually that, that began for me a, a, a very deliberate exploration of, of stillness and movement and their, their dynamic and I write about it and um, it's, a, it's a dance that I have always found fascinating and very powerful and so this, this image came up to me came up in my mind as I was thinking of this talk and of course because of the, the weekend retreat that we did on the still point. And so I, I wanted to talk about stillness, but really of stillness of mind, of stability of mind. Because see, what, what I was so struck by this young man was not the fact that he was just that he was still, but it felt like he was completely unified. You know, you see people read all the time, you know, in the subway and at the airport and the waiting room. And it's there. You can feel the, the feeling that you get is well. They're filling time. I've done that. We're just filling time. He was. He was. He was in it. It was like he was not there. In fact. And so this stillness of mind, this immovability of mind, in Buddhism is called equanimity.
And it's um, rare, I would say, extremely rare, and yet it is what's uh, necessary for, for this equipoise of, of mind, of being, really, where body, mind, and awareness are all unified. And it is, of course, one of the reasons that we so emphasize the stillness in Zazen. Uh, it's not just for the sake of remaining still. It's just that uh, as long as the body is moving, most often, not always, but most often the mind moves. An unstable posture makes it that much harder to establish a stable, unmoving mind. And so without that stillness, that, that deep, abiding stillness, you get thrown about, you know? by every passing wind, every storm, every cloud. Last, last week, Gokan and I were driving up from the city, and the weather was just incredible. I mean, there was, um, first there was the, these very dense clouds. I thought, in fact, there was a fire somewhere. I kept looking for the fire, and there turned out just to be clouds. It was um, fog as we crossed the bridge, and then it started to hail. And then it, it cleared up, and not one, but two rainbows, two full rainbows appeared right in front of us. Um, and Gokan was asking, you know, what, what would the people who first saw a rainbow, what did they think? You know, where did it come from, the source and the endpoint of a rainbow? And so I was curious, and so I, I did a little bit of, of research, and there's, you know, the, the typical leprechauns pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, which, of course, is always unattainable. But it was also seen as the gateway between the human realm and the god realm. And in the Cherokee lore, it's the, the border of the sun's coat, which I thought is nice. But, you know, when I started to read about what actually makes a rainbow, I thought, this is actually kind of a perfect image for equanimity. Because what happens is light hits a, a raindrop, and some of it uh, passes through, but some of it gets deflected back. It gets refracted off of the, the back of the drop, and it gets diffused. And according to the wavelength of, of that ray, it gives the different colors right, that we see, the red, yellow, uh, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. And I was thinking of, of the mind, you know, so, so to not... Um, misunderstand equanimity as armor, as a, as a shell where nothing comes in, nothing passes through, that it is actually like this, where, where there's a, a ray of light, a ray of energy, uh, let's say it's a feeling, an emotion, that comes through and it gets refracted and therefore diffused. And so it, it has a chance to just move through you. Which reduces it's, it's power. So you're feeling it. You're feeling it completely. Because I think the image, certainly, that I've had of equanimity is that you just don't feel. You know, you're so cool and collected that nothing moves you. And I think a more accurate uh, way of understanding it is that you feel completely, but you're not moved by it. You're not thrown by what you're feeling because it just moves. You see it's illusory nature. It is, in fact, like a raindrop. It is not solid. And the energy just has a chance to move through. 
So in the sutras, it said that equanimity is remaining unmoved in the face of gain and loss, of honor and dishonor, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. And again, unmoved is not unfeeling, is not uncaring, is not cold or distant or even protected. It is unshakable. It is a mind that is um, infinitely knowing pleasure and pain, honor and dishonor, and therefore is free. But as a person who remains in perfect equanimity, do they feel pain and pleasure? I think they do. I think they do. I think they know, however, intimately the nature of pleasure and pain. And knowing their nature, they're not taken in by them. So when pain arises, they are that pain. They feel the pain. They are that pain. And when pain passes, they let it go. The same is true of gain and loss, fame and disrepute. There's a story of, of Master um, Hakuen, and you know, who knows if the story is true, but it's such a nice story, uh, that there was a, a young, beautiful woman who lived uh, near his temple. And one day she came to her parents and confessed that she was pregnant. And furious, they tried to make her confess you know, who it was. And at first she wouldn't say, and she wouldn't say, and finally she said, well, it was the priest, Hakuen. So the parents, as you can imagine, were irate. And so they take the baby and they go over and knock on um, Hakuen's door and say, how could you? And we're here to give you your baby. Here's your son. And Hakuen just looks at them and says, oh, is that so? And he takes the baby. And by this point, you know, the, the news has spread all over the town. And so he's lost his reputation. And he doesn't really care. He just gets some milk from the neighbors and gets everything that he needs in order to take care of this baby. And a year goes by, and then the the young woman, she can't bear it anymore. So she goes back and confesses that really it was the, the fishmonger's son that got her pregnant. And so the parents are um, embarrassed, and, and they go and apologize profusely to Hakuin and say, you know, can we have the baby back? And Hakuin says, is that so? And just passes the baby along, gives it to them. And in a moment in which the ground opens up under you, what do you rely on? How do you take the next step? In a moment in which life as you know it changes, how do you proceed? Where a baby is brought to your doorstep, the, the, what you expected does not turn out the way that you thought it would. How do, you, how do you take the next step? You know, If the room is dark and our eyes are closed, we can pretty much assume we're going to crash into the furniture. So we have to first open our eyes but then also let in just a sliver of light, at least at the beginning, and let it grow gradually into a beam, a floodlight, until there's light everywhere, which I think is very much what practice is, is that seeing the spectrum of our experience 
and not being blind to any, any of it, which takes time, definitely takes time. And so equanimity is the characteristic of promoting, it says neutrality, um, but I think a better word is unity, of illuminating, of showing what is there, what was always there to begin with. That, that swirl of, of coral and tangerine and mauve clouds that, that we were uh, driving under after the rainbow, they appear to be different. They appeared to be different from Kokan and I, from that car that we were driving in, from the mountains that we were passing. Just as the, the young man appeared different from me and the subway car and the buildings. But fundamentally, they, they're not. They're not different. And so the function of equanimity is to see things impartially, without preference. Because being unified... There is no um, need to set to pit one against the other. The Faith Mind poem says basically exactly that. It says the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. To set what you like against what you dislike is a disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. And that's really it. That's really it. Equanimity is a mind that is not disturbed. It is open. It is aware. And undisturbed by what appears before it, regardless of what that is. Shugen Sensei always says, you know, that, that if we're practicing, we, we don't need to be surprised by what appears before us. We don't need to be caught unawares or afraid because it's all part of us. It's all part of that mind. And, and I remembered as I, as I wrote that, that you know, sometimes the Dharma appears in, in um, unexpected places. Uh, the, that story, uh, Children of Dune by Frank Herbert, had this, what the character says, uh, has a little mantra at one point that stayed with me all these years. You know, fear is the mind killer. I will face my fear. I will let it pass through me. And I've actually used it. I've actually used it as, a, as an invocation, if you will. That when everything is, in fact, illuminated, it's not that fear doesn't arise, but our relationship to it changes uh, dramatically sometimes. The way is perfect, like vast space, where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. It is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we don't see the true nature of things. We can't. It is like a veil, like a shroud, in fact, that we've wrapped ourselves in. How could we? How could we see things as they really are? So equanimity is removing that veil. Its proximate cause is the reflection upon the fact that all beings inherit the results of their own karma. All beings are heirs to their actions. Their actions are their ground. I was uh, speaking about the five remembrances last week, 
you know, I am of the nature to grow old, to be sick, to die. And everything that I love, everything that I have, everything that I own, I will be separated from. And the fifth one is that the only thing that I have really are my actions, that they are the ground upon which I stand. And so in a moment of anger, you know, when someone insults us, instead of uh, slashing, lashing back, perhaps we can remind ourselves that they too are walking on the ground of their actions, the ground that is built by their actions, which in turn continues building a particular path that is congruent with those actions. Or it can be a different path. It can be a fork on the road because the energy can be, in fact, transformed. So it is always, always possible to change. In understanding our karma, we understand that we are not a prisoner of it, of our actions, that we're not bound by it. Not understanding it, it very much feels like we are bound, like we don't have a choice. But in a moment of of seeing clearly that I'm the one who's creating and destroying, I can choose. If I can move slowly enough to think, well, this is what I've always done. It doesn't really work. What if I just try this, this time? And if every day you tell yourself, I am worthless, that creates karma, very real karma. And that has momentum, quite a strong momentum, in fact. But in a moment, in that particular moment, it takes exactly the same amount of energy to say, I am worthless, than to say, I am lovable. So if we don't drag into the moment the whole weight, the whole stream of our past, then in that moment, the, the, that, that action or that thought or that word can lie before us untouched as it were, and therefore open to questioning, open to reevaluation, open to change. So there is karma. And there are situations which we have not chosen. But what happens next, how we react to any given moment, is always, always in our own hands. Because we are the ones building the road. I read a story, um, which is, it's about the end of the world. And you don't know why the world is ending, but it's, but it's imminent. And they're in a, in a village. And everybody is just going out and getting clothes made and um, eating their last feasts. And there's this one man, a bricklayer, who decides that he's just going to build a road. And he builds it straight into the ocean. And, of course, he has no idea where it's going. He doesn't even know how far he can build it, as many bricks as he has. And yet, with every layer of brick that he lays down, he has that much more ground to stand on. The perfection of equanimity should be considered thus. When there is no equanimity, the offensive actions performed by beings cause oscillation in the mind. 
And when the mind oscillates, it is impossible to practice the requisites of enlightenment. It is impossible to practice the paramitas. It is impossible to see what it is that we're creating and destroying. It's impossible in a, in a very real way to wake up. And so we practice stilling those oscillations. We practice riding the waves of our anger, of our despair, our excitement, our passion. And we practice seeing the root of anger, of excitement, of passion, seeing its nature. It's passing, it's arising, and it's passing. So that we can, in fact, be free. And that, that sky that we were driving under, I, I told Gokhan, reminded me of, of a solar eclipse, which I witnessed in Mexico. The light was so uh, eerie, it was orange. And that, in turn, reminded me of, of an essay by Annie Dillard, who um, has a way of saying what she sees that is unlike any other I have ever read like anyone else's. And so I I pulled it out again. I pulled out that essay, and this is what I read. We teach our children one thing only, as we are taught, to wake up. We teach our children to look alive there, to join by words and activities the life of human culture on the planet's crust. As adults, we are almost all adepts at waking up. We have so mastered the transition, we have forgotten we have learned it. Yet it is a transition we make a hundred times a day, as like so many will-less dolphins, we plunge and surface, lapse and emerge. We live half our waking lives and all our sleeping lives in some private, useless, and insensible waters we never mention or recall. Useless, I say. Valueless, I might add. Until someone hauls their wealth up to the surface and into the wide-awake city, in a form that people can use. We are hauling up our wealth to the surface. This is practice, in a form that we and others can use. Because we can spend a, a good deal of time, too much time, in a darkened room. Or we can spend a good deal of time out and about, but with our eyes firmly shut. But we can also spend time learning how to open them and keep them open. And I wish, I wish that the only thing we taught our children was to wake up. We do teach them to join by words and activities the life of human culture on this planet. But what words, what activities, what thoughts are we teaching them? So often, we don't know. So often we don't know what we think or why we think it. So often we don't know what what we feel or why we feel it, where it's come from. And that is why we have to look and look and look again at this mind. Because you see, its waters are not actually useless. They're not insensible and they are definitely not private. We think they are, and that's the problem. But whether we're, we're hauling up uh, wealth or hauling up trash, it fills all of our backyards. 
And I saw this this cartoon at the at the hardware store in which uh, in the one square it's a caveman in what looks like a paradise. You know, there, there's a river flowing and the fish are jumping and the trees are blooming behind him and he's saying, "Me not happy." And then in the next cartoon, it's a businessman sitting on a pile of stuff, uh, refrigerators and microwaves and a tennis racket and a television and uh, cell phones. And there's a skeleton of the fish right there at his feet. And there's a, a factory spewing smoke in the background. And he's saying, still not happy. And that is our life. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. In the deeps are the violence and terror of which psychology has warned us. But if you ride these monsters deeper down, if you drop with them farther over the world's rim, you find what our sciences cannot locate or name, the substrate, the ocean or matrix or ether which buoys the rest, which gives goodness its power for good and evil its power for evil, the unified field, our complex and inexplicable caring for each other and for our life together here. This is given. It is not learned. Sciences cannot locate, locate or name the substrate, but religion has. People, people have. And so having no preferences doesn't mean that everything is rosy. Equanimity is not avoidance, it's not suppression, and it's not denial. It is complete acceptance, complete understanding of things as they are. And understanding that we have, in fact, the full capacity to create harm, and we also have the capacity for infinite, infinite goodness. And so equanimity is is walking with full confidence on that ground, on the unified field, and not being being, uh, afraid to accept and to act on that given, that inexplicable, irrefutable caring for one another. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessasvisegoddard.org.